The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 36 to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and are not able to rise. Okay, we've got a sermon text today from Exodus 34. Um, I'm going to remind you of this, but if uh, you uh, have it in mind, if you think of it, um, you might make a, a, a spot or a mark in your Bible also with uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but um, we'll get to that later. For right now, Exodus 34, verses 27 through 35, and I had it and then I closed it, and so now i got to go there again. 34, verse, uh, i got to be in the right book of the Bible, I'm in Genesis. Wow, good job, Charlie. Okay, Exodus 34, starting in verse 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone. While he talked with them. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. Then he would come out and speak with, to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Some years ago, I was reading this passage that we just looked at, and it made me think of the words, the refulgency of God. 
The word refulgent, it's an adjective, isn't very common. It simply means shining radiantly or resplendent. Thus, the refulgency of God would be the shining radiance or resplendent glory of God. That would be a noun. Being the odd soul that I am, I decided that instead of refulgency, I would modify the word to refulgent C, an adjective describing a noun. So you have refulgent with a capital C. From there, I made a meme with a marvelous burning C on it, and I put on the title of it, the refulgent C of God. Do you know that nobody got my pun? Not a single person. I was so embarrassed, I actually took it off. I was crushed. And that was the end of my meme-making days for quite a while. In today's account, and taken together with the rest of Scripture, we will logically see hints of the Trinity. We will also see the temporary nature of the Old Covenant and how that Old Covenant is actually a hindrance to a right standing with God. This is one of those passages that seems almost obscure and even quaint when quickly passed over. But what it reveals, the verses that we just read, what it reveals to us is as important to New Testament theology as almost any other passage that we will ever come across in the Old Testament. Our text verse today comes from Genesis chapter 38. It is verse 14. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. Judah's daughter-in-law covered herself in a veil in order to hide who she was from him. Moses covered his face in a veil as well. What are we being told in these passages? Well, if you listen to and remember the sermon that I did on Genesis 38, you may already be partially aware of what today's passage is showing us. If not, sit tight, pay attention, enjoy what God has set before you, and know that he is there unveiling his truth to those who are willing to accept what he has done through the person and work of Jesus Christ. One theme which resounds time and time again in the pages of the Bible are the words, Doctrine Matters. How much does it matter to you? To some, clinging to the law of Moses is where their hope lies. For those, today's passage should be a wake-up call. It is time to put behind us the works of the law. It is time to come to Christ. For those who have trusted in the finished work of Christ, today's passage is a reaffirmation that you are on the right road, the adventitious avenue, the perfect parkway, and the street of salvation. Be pleased to know that God has accepted you because you have received Jesus. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today. May his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first one is, he was there with the Lord. It's verses 27 and 28. Verse 27, then the Lord said to Moses. These words are a continuation of what began all the way back up in verse 1. The entire chapter is interconnected, and it is revealing the concept of the ongoing nature of the covenant, which is made between the Lord and Israel. This ongoing nature of the account is evidenced in the next words, write these words. The command to write is not based on what follows, but what was just said in verses 10 through 26. As we noted last week, the Lord is not reinstating the original covenant nor is a new covenant being made. Rather, this is a constant and a continuous establishment of a covenant to the people. And because of this, the entire time of his dealing with Israel is a transitional phase, which will be in anticipation of a new covenant. 
It is for this reason that the words of the prophets are considered as a part of the covenant. When the Lord spoke through Isaiah, for example, it was to be considered a part of this covenant. He would deal with Israel in a unique way, which was in anticipation of a new covenant. This was shown to be true last week when we cited the words of Jeremiah 31, where a new covenant was specifically promised. As Jeremiah was speaking under the old, it means that the entire working of the Lord with Israel was a part of a much greater plan, which was to come. The word of the Lord through Jeremiah pointed back to the covenant, which was broken by Israel after being brought out of Egypt by the Lord, and yet it anticipated a new covenant at some future point. And nothing shows us this more clearly than the words of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Here's what it says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This prophet mentioned by Moses is none other than the anticipated Messiah. In John 1 verse 21, the people wondered if John the Baptist was this coming prophet. He told them that he was not. As this prophet, meaning Christ Jesus, was to have the words of the Lord in his mouth, then it shows that his words were to be a part of this ongoing covenant. As he declared that the covenant was fulfilled in him, and simultaneously he declared the initiation of a new covenant, we see that the entire old covenant was both ongoing and yet limited in its duration. It ended with Christ's shed blood. Verse 27 continues, for according to the tenor of these words, kipi hadavarim ha'ele, for as to the mouth, the words, these. In other words, as the words were spoken to Moses, so he was to write. This shows us that the Lord is the ultimate author of scripture. When the Holy Spirit moved upon the prophets, it was according to the word or the mouth of the Lord. This is seen countless times in the Bible. A prophet would say, thus says the Lord God of Israel, or some other such statement. At times, it was the Lord who spoke directly to the prophet. At other times, the prophet spoke under inspiration of the Spirit. But at all times, it is the word of the Lord which defines Scripture. For this reason, we can rightly say that Jesus is both the author and the subject of all inspired Scripture. He even hinted at this in the giving of the New Testament. Here's what he said. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. And yet, Jesus claimed that the words he spoke were not under his own authority, but those of the Father who dwells in him. Here's what he said. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Thus we come to understand more fully his words to the disciples. I and my Father are one. The work of the Trinity is fully revealed in the giving of the word of God, the Holy Bible, to us. 
It is the same Lord who now says this to Moses. Verse 27 continues, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. As the Lord made the covenant, and as he fulfilled the covenant in himself, and as he initiated the new covenant in his blood, then we can see the ongoing nature of the old covenant until the time of its ending. It is all about Christ, all of it. It is all about what he determines for those he elects. At this point in history, the covenant is with Moses and with Israel. Verse 28, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. The interval of time is repeated from Moses' previous ascent up the mountain. It seems as if a period of 40 days and 40 nights is excessive for what little information we've been given here. But Deuteronomy chapter 9 explains the state of things. Moses spent much of his time interceding for the people who had sinned. Here's what it says. And I fell down before the Lord as at the first 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin which you committed in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was angry with you to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me at that time also. And the Lord was very angry with Aaron and would have destroyed him. So I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. It would be good at this time to reiterate the meaning of the number 40 as defined by E.W. Bollinger. He says that 40 is associated with a period of probation, trial, and chastisement, not judgment like the number nine, which stands in connection with the punishment of enemies, but the chastisement of sons and of a covenant people. It is the product of five and eight and points to five grace leading to and ending in renewal and revival, which is the number eight. This is certainly the case where 40 relates to a period of evident probation, but where it relates to enlarged dominion or to a renewed or extended rule, then it does so in virtue of its factors of four and 10 and in harmony with their signification. In fact, both of Bollinger's significations of the number 40 apply here at this point. Moses' time on the mountain is both a time of evident probation and it is also a time of renewed and extended rule. The time period was certainly repeated as a test of the people below. They had failed the first time during his absence, and now they were being tested and refined through his second absence. But further, it is a time of renewing and extending the original covenant. It is really, to me, very astonishing how the numbers of Scripture so perfectly and continually match what is occurring in each account. Verse 28 continues, He neither ate bread nor drank water. There are three people who are mentioned in the Bible as having fasted for this period of time in Scripture. The first is Moses, who did it twice. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah is said to have fasted 40 days and 40 nights as he traveled to this very same mountain. And finally, Jesus is said to have fasted this same time period in Matthew 4, verse 2. It seems improbable that someone could survive this amount of time without bread and water. But the reason for it is given explicitly in Matthew 4, verse 4, during Jesus' trial. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There Jesus cites the words of Deuteronomy chapter 8, which speak of the manna which was given to the people. Here's what it says. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. 
But Moses had no manna. That's down for the people there. He's on the mountain. And so how can these two be reconciled? The answer is found in John chapter 6. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they're dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The manna only pointed to Christ. Thus, it is not at all improbable that these men were able to endure 40 days and 40 nights without food and drink. Christ is the true manna, and he was able to sustain Moses and Elijah just as he was able to sustain himself, relying solely on the providence of God for nourishment. Verse 28 continues, And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Although this appears to be speaking of Moses, because he's been mentioned several times in repetition, the New King James Version rightly translates this verse with a capital H on the word he. This clause is speaking not of Moses, but of the Lord. This is confirmed in the words of Deuteronomy chapter 10, where it says this, So I made an ark of acacia wood, hewed two tablets of stone like the first, and went up the mountain, having the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote, he, meaning the Lord, wrote on the tablets according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you in the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark, which I had made. And there they are, just as the Lord commanded me. Though the second set of tablets was made by Moses, the writing of them was still the work of the Lord. The purity of the word of God is evidenced in these marvelous verses in a most wonderful way. God has allowed us to transmit and to carry his word, but it is still the word of the Lord. There are notable contrasts, though, between this 40-day period and that of Matthew 4. Here, Moses receives the word from the Lord on the high mountain. In Matthew, there is the same Lord protecting and defending this same word in the wilderness. In this, fallen Moses had asked for a divine revelation of the Lord. In Matthew 4, the Lord was tempted by the one who caused man to fall, Satan. In this, the law is spoken in anticipation of it being adhered to. In Matthew, the law is adhered to in anticipation of it being fulfilled. In this, the tablets foreshadow Christ coming from man, but embodying the law given by the Lord. In Christ is the man who is the Lord and who embodies the same law. This is more than just a quaint account of Moses and the Lord. In this, there is the Lord giving us one picture after another of what he intended to do, which led to what he did and which continues to be reflected in what he does for each person who comes to him by faith. The word of God, glorious and pure, has been given to us a perfect gift. Its contents are truthful, steady, and sure, there to provide our souls with a lift. When we are low in a time of great need, we can go to this marvelous, perfect gift. And before we know it, even with great speed, our souls have been given a blessed lift. Let us hold fast to this word which has been given to us. Let us never take for granted this marvelous gift. It is what refreshes our lives as it tells us of Jesus. And so it is exactly what we need to give our souls a lift. Our second thought today is that which is glorious. It's verses 29 through 35. Verse 29, now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain. 
This is similar to Exodus 32:15. Both times it is careful to note that the tablets were in the hand of Moses. The same is true in verse 4 when he ascended the mountain. The tablets were carefully noted as being in his hands there as well. As the tablets are the means by which God's word is put on display, it begs an obvious question of each one of us. Do we have the same care for God's word as he does? Do we? Each reference to the word of God in the word of God is noted as something which we are to be aware of, to tend to, to safeguard, and to hold in the very highest of esteem. Is this how we treat this same word which we have now been entrusted with? In the Bible, the term in hand has a similar meaning as in English. It refers to having possession of something and to have charge over its care. Is this the attitude which we display towards this treasure of infinite value? Verse 29 continues, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. The translation here says the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. This is not the sense of what is written. Rather, it says the skin of his face shone through his talking with him. It was in the conversation with the Lord that his face was made to shine, and it continued to shine even afterwards. A new word is introduced into the Bible here, karan. It is a verb translated as shown. It's used just four times in the Bible, three times in this chapter when speaking of the shining face of Moses, and once in the 69th Psalm where it is translated as horns. This is what it says in Psalm 69. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bull, which has horns and hooves. Karan comes from the noun keren, which means horns. Therefore, some translations actually say that Moses had horns. Here's what a Catholic version, the Dewey Rames Bible says. And when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he held the two tablets of the testimony, and he knew not that his face was horned from the conversation of the Lord. From these older translations, such as the Latin Vulgate and the Dewey Rames and others, depictions have been made of Moses actually having horns, like those of a ram. But this is not the intent of this verse. Rather, the light which shone off of him was so brilliant that it emitted out rays of light, just like the horns of an animal emit out of its head. If we compare this descent down the mountain with the previous one, there are some important contrasts to note. In the first, he was filled with righteous anger for the Lord. He is now filled with the glory of the Lord. Then he came to a people who were swimming in idolatry and unafraid of the Lord. And here he returns to a people who are literally afraid of the glory of the Lord. In the first, Moses destroyed the tablets of the testimony. Here he will have them carefully deposited in the Ark of the Covenant. The two accounts contrast, and yet they confirm the work of Christ, which is pictured in the second descent over the failings of Adam, which is pictured in the first descent. In Adam, there is enmity with God a violation of his law, and no fear of who he is. And from that came resulting death. In Christ, there is a fellowship with God, there is faithful satisfaction of his law, and a reverent fear of who he is. And from that comes life. None of this is by random chance. Again, each detail is given as a set of instructions concerning man, the Lord, the law, and grace. Everything is tied together to show us the superiority of the work of the Lord for us over the failings of Adam, of which we are included. Verse 30, so when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near. 
This is rather similar to that of the moments after the fall of man. Here's what it says in Genesis 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Adam had been confronted with the knowledge of his sin, and he feared the presence of the Lord. Now the people of Israel are being confronted once again with the law of the Lord on tablets and the glory of the Lord reflected in the face of Moses. Here, we are told that they saw Moses. There's nothing to suggest that they thought it was anyone but Moses. However, there was a change in him which they did not understand. The light shining off of him meant something, but they couldn't discern whether it meant good or evil towards them. The glory of the Lord, even in a secondary manner such as this, combined with the second set of tablets bearing God's law, seems to have uncovered their sinful state and exposed it to their hearts. No wonder the Lord said in the last chapter that no man shall see me and live. The very thought of sin-filled man standing in the presence of pure holiness and beholding it with uncovered eyes would mean utter destruction. From Aaron down, there was fear because of the revealed glory of the Lord. Verse 31, then Moses called to them and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Like Adam, who had hidden himself from the Lord, those who saw Moses hid themselves from the glory of the Lord, which had rested upon Moses. And like Adam, who came forth to speak to the Lord and admit his nakedness, Aaron and the rulers came forward despite their nakedness. This same type of spiritual encounter will occur again in the future. Christ will come back in his full splendor, and all of the rulers of Israel will fear. But when he calls to them, they will return to him. When they do, he will speak to them as well. Their nakedness will be covered in his righteousness, and the law will be secreted away once and for all time in the true ark, Christ the Lord. The patterns repeat so that we can see the Lord's hand in each step of the process. As it says in Ecclesiastes 3.15, whatever exists now has already been, and whatever will be has already been, for God will seek to do again what has occurred in the past. In other words, we have a pattern in Adam, it's repeated at Sinai, and it's going to be repeated at the ending of the law when Israel calls on Jesus. Verse 32, afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with them on Mount Sinai. What this appears to be is a congregational gathering of the people where Moses stood and spoke aloud to all who could hear. Everything that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai, he repeated as commandments for the people. In their own hearing, he spoke to them exactly as they had requested after the giving of the Ten Commandments. Here's what it said. You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Again, like earlier in this chapter, the mount is called Sinai rather than Horeb. When the name Sinai is used, it is normally referring to the ongoing workings of redemption by God for his people, such as the case here. The commandments of the Lord were spoken, and now they are being transmitted to the people of God. Sinai is used once again to bring us the idea of the work of Christ. Sinai means bush of the thorn. It is a picture of the work of Christ culminating in the cross of Christ where he had a crown of thorns on his head. The law is given and it is a ministry of death, not of life. This is seen in the next words. Verse 33, and when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. The King James Version and the Webster versions of the Bible give the exact opposite rendering of the Hebrew. 
It states that the veil was on Moses' face when he spoke to the people, not after. This is incorrect. The New King James Version corrected this error. The people of Israel were given a chance to see the reflected glory of the Lord personally. When Moses spoke to the leaders, and then when he spoke to the people, he did it with an unveiled face. He expounded the law to them, and they listened. However, when he finished speaking with them, he then put a veil over his face. The word veil here is masve. It's introduced into the Bible right in this verse. It's going to be used once in this and each of the next two verses, and it will never be seen again. It comes from an unused root meaning to cover. The glory of the Lord would be covered over, and thus it would be concealed from their eyes. They would have the law, but it was a law which was veiled to them. It could not save anyone, and this was never its purpose. Instead, it is a law which has an end. It is this passing away of the law superseded by the glory of the Lord, which was veiled to Israel. Verse 34, but when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. There is rich symbolism here. What is in the spot where Moses would go and speak with the Lord? The ark, which contained the tablets. This hasn't actually been recorded yet, but it says this in Deuteronomy 10, verse 5. This ark, as we have seen, pictures Christ who embodies the law. Within him is the fulfillment of the law. In this, the veil is removed. But for those who do not know Christ, a covering stands between them and the Lord, which obscures who he is and the glory that he reveals. When Moses was in the presence of the Lord, the veil was removed, and it would stay off until he once again came out. During that time, he would receive the law of the Lord, which he would then relay to the people as we read next. Verse 34 continuing, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had been commanded. The law of the Lord was communicated to the people by Moses, who alone reflected the glory of the Lord. They would hear the words, and they would have a validation that the words were from the Lord by the rays of light shining from Moses' face. After they had received this proof, then he would cover himself as is seen in our final verse of the day, verse 35. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. They would see the glory of the Lord radiating off of Moses' face. Thus, the authentication of the words of the law would be made. After this, he would then cover his face until he again went in before the Lord. The fact that the law was something temporary and destined to end was veiled from the people. They took the law as a perpetual covenant, and they still take it this way today in Israel. Even some Judaizing sects of Christianity still look at the law in this manner, and thus a veil rests over their eyes. This is explained in detail by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So I'd like you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 while I read you this poem that I composed for you. How I love your law, O Lord, it is my meditation day and night. And upon your law I contemplate with all my mind. But in your law I find myself in a challenging plight. I find myself in a spot difficult and unkind. I see your laws perfect, but I am prone to sin. I find a war within myself which rages against my will. What will free me from this body of death? Am I done in? How can I these evil desires crush? I'm fighting with them still. Thanks be to God, I can prevail through the Lord Jesus. In his cross, I am set free and I am granted new life. What a marvelous God who has done these things for us. In Jesus, I find release from the once raging strife. Our third thought today is from glory to glory, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
we have to ask ourselves each time we come to a passage like this in the Old Testament, what is the Lord trying to tell us? Why did he include this remarkable but otherwise obscure passage concerning the radiant face of Moses? The answer is that he is showing us Christ. And the best part about it, unlike many of the other sermons we've done, is we don't need to struggle with it to find an answer at all. Okay, instead of searching mind and searching the word for secret clues, the Lord has revealed the meaning to us. Paul clearly and precisely explains it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So, I asked you to turn to that passage, and I did not bookmark it, so it'll take me a second to get there, and we'll read it. Do we begin again to commend, commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because of the glory that excels. For if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, that same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil, that word veil is inserted, is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on the heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Oh, my hair standing up all over my body. It's just unreal. In the previous chapter... Paul spoke of victory in Christ. He then said that the message of the apostles carried the fragrance of Christ among those who were being saved and among those who were perishing. Expanding on that, he gave a contrast as to how the fragrance is received. He says that to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. And in the Greek, it reads, istanaton, from death to death. The state of the unregenerate is already death. This is because the wages of sin is death and all have sinned. Those who reject the gospel message, therefore, do it from death to death. There can be no life for someone who is already dead and who has chosen the path of death by rejecting Christ. And as I was lying in bed last night thinking about the world, people say all the time, let's live it up. There's no living it up when you're already dead. If you're dead, you're dead. Living it up means you're going to death, from death to death. It makes complete sense when you look at Paul's words as they're written in the Bible. The state of the unregenerate is already death. There's nothing that we can do about it, and what we need to do is to have Christ to come and change us. For the one who reaches out and receives the fragrant aroma of the gospel message, Paul says it is ek zois, 
es zoen, from life to life. The source of life is found in the gospel message, which centers on Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, he told his audience that they were in themselves an epistle of Christ, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart, he says. Here, he contrasts the superiority of the gospel of Christ over the law of Moses. One was written on stone, the other is written on the heart. He then went on to say very exactingly that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. As I said earlier, the law could save no one, nor was this its intent. Rather, the letter, meaning the law, kills. Only the spirit can give life. Remember now, Paul was a Pharisee. He was trained like few other people in all of Israel's history, and yet he came to understand that the law was opposed to salvation. Despite this, he tells about the magnificence of the law. He says, but if the ministry of death, meaning the law, written and engraved on stones, meaning the Ten Commandments, which was the basis of the law, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Here we see the truth that it was the law itself which brought the radiant shine to Moses' face. The pure law of God given directly by God to Moses was so splendid that it caused his face to shine as if he had horns protruding from his face. The radiation of the glory of God emanated from Moses after he beheld the divine glory. This was a part of his ministry as the lawgiver to the people. It showed the splendor of what God was doing in the giving and tending to of the law through Moses. And yet, Paul's words showed that this amazing glory, which caused this supernatural emanation of light from the face of Moses, was simply passing away. In other words, the law which was given through Moses is being equated with the passing away of the glory of the light emanating from Moses. There would be a time when the law would fade into history, being replaced with something even more glorious. The law was never intended to be a means to an end. It was a part of the dispensational model of God's interactions with mankind, leading us another step towards the coming of Jesus Christ. The reason why is because the law is reflective of the perfection of Jesus Christ. In Christ, the law is fulfilled, and thus the Spirit is available to any who will come to him through faith in what he has done. And so, if the law brought death to man, and yet it radiated with glory, Paul asks, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? It's a wonderful, it's an even amazing sediment. Paul has spoken of the glory of the ministry of death, meaning the law of Moses, which is fading away. In an argument from the lesser to the greater, he now basically asks, if that was so glorious, then how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? But Paul doesn't call it the ministry of life, as if in contrast to the ministry of death. Instead, he calls it the ministry of the Spirit. This Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, is life. And so the contrast is made instead to the physical, tangible stone with carved letters. Because of the use of the Spirit in place of the law, it is speaking of the entire process of the transmission of the gospel, the work at Pentecost, his influence on the apostles to include their work of writing out, which is now the New Testament, and the continued preaching and evaluation of that word. This and so much more is the ministry of the Spirit. It is this which is more glorious, and it is this which will reveal many glories ahead. 
This is seen in his use of the Greek preposition en, which denotes the permanent nature of the glory. And then the verb translated as will be, which is in the future tense. It shows that what is yet to be revealed contains surpassing glory. Everything about the new surpasses the old, both in the present and in what is yet to be revealed. In verse 9, Paul then changes the terms. He goes from the ministry of death to the ministry of condemnation and from the ministry of the spirit to the ministry of righteousness. In other words, the law brought death and associated with that death is condemnation. It is ineffectual to save anyone. However, the spirit brings life and with that comes righteousness. It is not only sufficient to quicken the spirit to live, but to also grant Christ's righteousness to the one who is so quickened. The glory of this ministry of righteousness far exceeds the glory of the law. The law faded away, but the work of Christ will endure for all eternity. The glory of Christ will shine upon his redeemed throughout the ages of ages. And I had somebody just this morning who's a friend on Facebook. She asked me, are we still obligated to the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament? And she attends his church. And I told her, absolutely not. And I gave her verse after verse. And I don't think she was questioning it herself. She was being challenged and she needed verses to post on Facebook. And so I posted those. And I said, this is what is being reflected throughout the Bible. The law will only kill people. It will only condemn people. Then as a side note, two years ago today, I baptized my father in the uh, Gulf of Mexico. In verse 10, hallelujah. hallelujah, that I'm talking about the ministry of the Spirit. And there we go. We have the ministry of the Spirit. In verse 10, Paul compares the two dispensations. The giving of the law at Sinai was glorious. It was glorious in the contents of the law, which it revealed. It was glorious in how that law was ministered through the time of Israel's life under it as well. And yet it was a ministry of death. It showed that man cannot fulfill its requirements. Instead, it only brought condemnation. The only thing that spared men from this was a grant of mercy based on the Day of Atonement rituals, which they did year after year. However, the covenant which came through the work of Jesus is a ministry of life. It excels in that where the law brought death, it brings life. Where the law brought condemnation, it brings salvation. Where the law was written on stone, it is written on our hearts. In Jesus, there is full pardon of sin. In Jesus, there is the sure hope of restoration with God. In Jesus, there is the prospect of eternal life. In all ways, the glory of the law is shown to have only fading glory compared to the work of Jesus on our behalf. Jesus is our day of atonement, a one-time and for all-time glory. In verse 11, Paul again shows the superlative nature of the grace of God in Christ over the giving of the law. In verse 12, he says that because of the hope of this grace, there is a boldness which was lacking in the law. This is detailed in verse 13, and it explains the obscurity of our passage in Exodus chapter 34 today. Paul uses the account of the Israelites before Moses as an allegory of the time in which we live today. The law is ended in Christ, but the Israelites could not see the end of it. They looked at the law as permanent and as a means to an end. They didn't look at the law as something that was intended to lead us to Christ. Because they missed this, they could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, as Paul says it. And this is exactly what has happened in the dispensational model of history. But The scholar Hermann Olshausen asks a question. He's kind of jabbing at Christians with their theology. He says, how could St. Paul say that Moses covered his countenance in order that the Israelites should not behold Christ? His question seems to imply that it would be wrong for Israel, who was looking for their Messiah, 
to be denied seeing Christ. But the question is faulty. They were not denied this actively. Instead, they chose to deny him. They were offered Christ in Acts chapter 2. After all of his work was completed and after his crucifixion, they stood up in Acts chapter 2 and they offered Christ to the entire nation. From there and throughout all of the book of Acts, it shows the truth that Jesus was rejected by them. Paul explains this in Romans 11 verse 25. He says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Guess what? Rapture, Israel will soon know their Lord after that. God knew in advance that Israel would reject their Messiah, but it served a greater purpose in that the nations received him and became the called out Gentile church. Israel was set aside during this dispensation until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There is a time coming when the Gentiles will have reached their fullness and they will be raptured home to be with the Lord. And at that time, the focus will be on the nation of Israel once again. On that day, the veil will be taken away and they will see that Christ is, in fact, the end of the law for all who believe. Paul explains this in verse 14. He notes that the Jews and indeed anyone who would follow the misguided notion about the purpose and continuance of the Old Testament is blinded. This blinding of one's eyes indicates spiritual blindness. This veil which remains in place is unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Anytime the law is read to a person who is trying to be justified by the law, the veil remains. Think of whoever challenged this lady on dietary restrictions. They're working their way to heaven, and they will never get there. If they die before they call on Christ, they will be eternally separated from him. They have missed Christ, and they are attempting to seek a right standing before God based on personal merit. It is a self-condemning act. Finally, in verse 14, the New King James Version ends this verse with, because the veil as I said, it's inserted, is taken away in Christ. This is not the intent of Paul's words. The word veil is inserted. It's not in the original Greek. They have incorrectly assumed that it is the veil which is taken away. But this is properly explained in verse 16. Rather, it is speaking of the law itself. In Christ, the law is taken away. Only when one realizes this is the veil then removed. John Darby rightly translates this verse with these words. He says, but their thoughts have been darkened for unto this day, the same veil remains in reading the old covenant unremoved, which in Christ is annulled. Perfect word used because it comes right out of the book of Hebrews. In verse 15, Paul explicitly tells us that when the law of Moses is read by any who are trying to be justified by the law, a veil lies over their heart, just as the veil was placed over Moses' face. And then in verse 16, he shows us something really wonderful. Different translators look at what this verse is saying in different ways. In the New King James Version, it says, when one turns to the Lord. It implies that each time a Jew turns to Jesus, the veil is taken away. However, other translations say, when it shall turn to the Lord. This then is speaking of the heart of Israel collectively as a people. The Weymouth version says this more specifically with the words, but whenever the heart of the nation shall have returned to the Lord, the veil will be withdrawn. It is true that individually, as Jews come to the Lord, the veil is taken away. We see this all the time. You see it on YouTube all the time, a Jew coming to the Lord and the veil is taken away and they start speaking about the Lord. However, the context of this passage is implying the nation as a whole. This is what is pictured in Exodus 34. 
In verse 31, it said, then Moses called to them and Aaron and the rulers of the congregation returned to him. The veil is being lifted and Moses talked with them. The prophetic picture of that passage is that the rulers who represent the nation returned to Moses. The word drives the analogy, which Paul clearly saw and is using for us to see. In verse 17, Paul says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Lord is the spirit of biblical interpretation. This is not then speaking of the Holy Spirit, but the knowledgeable relationship between what is written in the law and what it is pointing out, which is Jesus Christ. Finally, Paul closes out with marvelous words, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord I got to tell you, my hair is standing up all over my body, and I've been practicing this for eight days now, and I'm still excited reading this. At this time, we are beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord. This happens each time that we contemplate the gospel, or now because it is written, we search out New Testament scriptures, and in the searching out of Christ in this way, Paul says that we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Just as Moses' face reflected the glory of the Lord when he came before the Israelites, so we are being transformed. It is not a physical transformation, but a spiritual one. As we conform to the prescriptions of the New Testament, and as we follow as disciples of Christ, we are being spiritually transformed into that same image, the image of Christ, thus from glory to glory. We behold the glory, and it transforms us to that glory. Paul finishes his thought and the chapter with these words, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. It is the Spirit who calls, It is the Spirit who seals, and it is the Spirit who sanctifies. And as we pursue Christ from glory to glory, the Spirit is accomplishing His role in the process to conform us to the image of God in Christ. From what is obscure and hidden, there in chapter 34 of Exodus, to that which is revealed and open, right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and all the way through the New Testament, each one of these things is given to us to help us to see Jesus Christ. It speaks of Christ. Because of this, I would hope that each one of you would search him out, read his word, and fellowship intimately with him and with those he has called your brothers and your sisters in the Lord. And if by chance you have never taken the blessed opportunity of calling on Jesus Christ and being saved from your just due as the object of God's wrath, please let me tell you what will bring you to become an object of his affection and a recipient of his marvelous grace. You want to know what it is? It's Jesus. You need Jesus. He died on the cross for your sins. If you're willing to accept that and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And nothing else is going to work. We don't waffle in our questions when people come to us and say, is Jesus the only way to heaven? What do you say? Yes. Yes. There's no, well, let me talk about this for a while. You say yes, and then you can start giving them scriptural support. There is one way to God. It is through Jesus Christ. All other people on this planet are condemned, and that's why we give our money to missionaries who are overseas to tell about people and why we go down to the projects and tell people about Jesus and go all over our dining outs and our bank and everywhere we go, and we give them a track because we want them to know about Jesus because other than that, they are on the road to perdition. They're on the way to the lake of fire. Tell people about Jesus. Lots of tracks back there. We got 10 million of them. Don't be stingy. Paul buys them. I don't. So take all you want. Yes. 10 million. Well, there's 9 million left because somebody took a million this morning. Our closing verse today comes from Romans chapter 11. 
Listen to the words because it's pictured in what we were looking at right here today, the veil, the people coming back to the Lord, all of that. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, just because you're Gentiles and you're the called out church, don't be wise. But blindness in Israel in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It's going to happen. And on that day, their whole nation is going to turn its collective heart to the Lord. It's going to be an amazing thing. We'll be up there watching it. I can't wait. We get front row seats, baby. Next week is Exodus 35. It's verses 1 through 19. The next few uh, sermons, especially uh, four or five of them, are going to be a little different because there's a lot of repetition in the uh, next week won't be so much that way. But after that, we're going to get some that are very repetitious because the Lord told them to make the tabernacle and gave all the detail. Guess what? Word for word, it says they did this, they did this. So it's going to be a different type of sermon for a while. Tomorrow, our next week's sermon will get you ready for that. Anyway, it's Exodus 35, 1 through 19. When you get your call, don't be nervous. It's entitled a call to service. That'll be our 97th Exodus sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters. He can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him. And he'll do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay, very short poem today from glory to glory. Then the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I say, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel, and these words will direct you in the way. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water as well. And he wrote on the tablets, the words of the covenant, the 10 commandments, God's great law for Israel. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand. When he came down from the mountain by and by, that Moses did not know that the face, skin of his face shone while he talked with him. To him, this condition was unknown. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, they were filled with fear. Behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid for him to come near. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Yes, he talked to the rulers of the nation. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near as, and as commandments them he gave, all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai, directions for how they were to behave. And when Moses had finished speaking with them in that place, it was then that he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off as the situation demanded until he came out and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him in the tent with him all alone. Lord, you have explained to us in your word that it is Jesus who shines forth your radiant glory. And so we hail him as our exalted Lord, and we hold fast to this marvelous gospel story. Praises, yes, praises to you, O Lord our God. Forever we shall praise you as in your presence we trod. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful pictures of Christ in the Old Testament and how some of them there are actually explained to us so that we can see that everything like this is an allegory and that we're to search him out and to find him there and to see the glory revealed and to understand this plan, this marvelous plan which has been going on for 6,000 years which was centered on the moment when Christ gave his life on the cross. 
What a pivotal moment in human history that he should die for our sins and then be raised to new life for our justification. Thank you for that. Thank you for what you have done through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We love you and we praise you. We thank you for it with all of our heart and all of our soul. Let us never waffle in our convictions, but to say proudly, I am a Christian and to stand boldly on the fact that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. We stand on that and we trust it because it is your word and your word is truth. And we love you and we exalt you in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. What a marvelous passage, huh? Radiant face of Moses. What's that picturing? You know, the Lord always has a reason for those kind of quaint stories. Just And thank goodness, you know, I didn't have to do any thinking on that one because Paul explains it in the New Testament. But sometimes you get these passages and you say, Lord, I know you're telling me something. And you go, she's seen me. I've been at the dinner table like this for hours, just sitting there, not just thinking. And all of a sudden, ah, and then we have dinner. The poor lady, you know, literally, this is true. Oh, goodness. Uh, we get the instructions for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. Uh, there Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, melech haolam hamotzi lechem bin haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who... King of the universe who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's what happens when I get thinking other thoughts while I'm doing something. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For our family out there streaming or on YouTube, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go ahead. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you'll take his cup when he's done, that way he can sit down. Go ahead and take that. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Thank you.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And no beep. No beep. Praise the Lord for that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's done on me. So used to it. Mm -hmm. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. I think when I type a sermon like today's on a passage, the first time I read it, and I can still think about it, the first time I read it, and I'm so excited, this face is shining, and what does this mean? And the glory that's being transmitted, and I read the Bible many, many times, even through Paul, not understanding. Then all of a sudden, one day it clicked in, the new covenant, the new covenant, it surpasses the glory. And then to study it and to see the individual words and how they point to that glory. And everything about it, it's just astonishing. What a great God. And uh, just uh, so you all know, right now we're going through Ephesians in uh, the daily uh, Bible verses. And right now we're in the part with, if you see my prayers on Facebook every day, they're about husbands and wives. That's because it relates to the verses we're going through. Very important verses from Paul to understand the relationship between husband and wife. And something as simple as he says, he cites uh, Genesis chapter 2, I'm, uh, yeah, chapter 2, and he says, uh, the man and the woman will be united and they become one flesh. He doesn't say one body. That would be a contradiction. He says they're one flesh. They are now one in essence. And so these things, even simple words that we pass over so quickly are important truths for us to remember. And so husbands, cherish your wives the way that the Bible admonishes you. Women, be devoted to your husbands just as the Bible admonishes you to. And uh, make sure you cook something really nummy like my wife. <laughs> wow, I'm so blessed. Lord God, we thank you so much for this word. And we thank you for all the pictures and the patterns and the details. And uh, it's okay to know Jesus. It's, I shouldn't say it that way. It's wonderful to know Jesus. It's wonderful to be saved by him. But how wonderful beyond that is to get into the understanding of the deeper things 
that you have given us and not to remain shallow Christians, but to go deeper and to understand these truths in a way which shows us that when somebody comes and tells us, well, you can't eat this or you need to do that, that we already know that's not true, that you have done it all for us and that we are freed from those things. What a great God to understand that, not to be fearful in our our walk of faith, but to be joyous in our walk of faith because of what you have done. Thank you for it. We love you for it. We praise you for it. We exalt you in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen.